New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. On the world stage, things are quite fraught and charged up. And humanity seems to be collectively drowning in an ocean of chronic planetary traumatic stress. So we might ask, what life raft might I reach for? Is it one that will carry me on a continued pursuit of consumerism and chasing after the next shiny thing? Or might I choose to climb aboard the raft of substantial spiritual support that will reshape my choices in a more life-supporting way of being? The good news is that we have access to the timeless and practical wisdom of two American philosophical treasures, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, who have profound messages of relevance to impart that address the problems we face today. And that is what we'll be exploring with our guest, Mark Matusik. Mark Matusik is a teacher, spiritual seeker, and award-winning author of many books. He leads transformative workshops, intensive and guided writing sessions that mentors participants to reach their artistic and personal goals by using writing as a tool for insight, innovation, and clarity of purpose. He's the founder of the Seekers Forum, an online community for self-inquiry. His many books include Writing to Awaken, A Journey of Truth, Transformation, and Self-Discovery, and Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore the radical and relevant philosophy of Ralph Waldo Emerson and why his transformational wisdom is exactly the medicine we need today with our guest, Mark Matusik. I'm speaking with Mark from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's great to see you again. Oh, it's marvelous to see you once more. I want to go back. You took one book with you early on many years ago when you traveled to India, and that book was the Portable Emerson 
right? Why that book? What made you choose that book? From the time I discovered Emerson when I was a grad student at UCLA, uh, he became a lifeline for me to transcendental cosmic uh, vision and connection. Uh, I was an agnostic, raised as an atheist. I had no spiritual background. But when I started reading Emerson, sort of accidentally, uh, as a research assistant for someone writing a book about him, uh, I touched on something that I felt I already knew. When Emerson wrote about the vastness, the infinitude of the private man, I knew what he was talking about. And he became, for me, a touchstone for that kind of awareness. Uh, and so I, he was with me always. And when I went to India, I was I was under duress. I had just gotten a bad diagnosis. I didn't think I was going to be around that long. And he was always there to kind of talk me off the ledge on a bad day. I could read a page of Emerson and come back to myself, come back to a sense of possibility that is easily shrunk in the world, not only because of the, the dangers of the world that we all know, but I was also in crisis. So Emerson, for me, became a very potent reminder of another way of seeing. He has a very interesting history. I'd love for you to share a bit about the time that he lived in, what was going on in the world at that point? Where did he live? What was his family configuration? So give us a little thumbnail of the bowl that he was living in at the time. Sure. Well, Emerson was born in 1803. Uh, he was the middle child. He had four brothers who were all outstanding and intelligent and outgoing. And Emerson himself was a, a quite antisocial, awkward, um, chubby, timid, sickly boy. So he was the Emerson child of whom nothing much was expected. Uh, and his father died when he was nine years old, which left the family in, in kind of genteel poverty. His mom started taking in borders. Uh, it was hand to mouth. So he grew up with a sense of real precariousness in his world. He was surrounded by death from an early age. Two of his brothers then died of, of tuberculosis. So this was a dangerous and difficult time uh, to be alive. So that was his family background. And the New England that he was born into, he was born in Boston, and he eventually moved to Concord, Massachusetts, was in a time of real ferment and danger. Uh, slavery was a huge issue. Uh, abolition was on the rise. Emerson was in the crosshairs. He was a seventh generation minister. So he had inherited a, a very prestigious job. Uh, eventually, when he got out of college, he did become a minister uh, for a time. And he was in the crosshairs of this very intense dialogue around things like uh, abolition and slavery, the rights of man, uh, materialism versus spirituality. That was a huge thing in his time. He saw what was happening in this young, kind of callow, wealthy country and what would happen if we lost track of our spiritual roots. And that was a real concern for him as a minister. And then he lost his faith. After his wife died, he went through a major crisis of faith. He didn't feel like he could administer the sacraments anymore in good, in good faith. So he left the church and he became a speaker on the Lyceum circuit. 
uh, and spent the next 50 years uh, traveling the country talking to people without without a a, cl- a collar on so that he was literally uncollared you know he was free to speak his mind and say what he wanted and he en- eventually became the conscience of his generation he was the guy who was came out against the fugitive slave act uh, he was very vocal on in terms of education and history scholarship uh, the need for cultivating our what he called self-reliance. These he was the spiritual godfather of our country during its most violent history uh, period in history, and so uh, he was someone I thought had a lot to say to the moment that we're living in now. There was one a really fascinating story about how he was invited back to Harvard at some point to speak to the young student theologians sure well he was he was invited as you were saying to to address the Harvard Divinity School and instead of talking about the wonders of the church and the importance of obeying authority he came in and started talking to these kids about leaving school not needing books go into the woods you don't need an intermediary uh, to connect to God. Everything that they were not taught in school, it was absolutely sacrilegious. And in fact, it was so blasphemous that he was uh, evicted, kicked off the Harvard campus for 30 years. He wasn't allowed to come back to the Harvard campus. He, people were so shocked. He was a real pagan in his time. He was, he was a radical that's what's so amazing to me. And also you you mentioned at the time there was two schools of thought. There was the materialism, you know, that was rampant and came out of the age out of Europe in the age of enlightenment and rationality and all of that. And then there was this other thing that was happening that he held to. And he also held to what is called self-reliance. And when we think of that, we might think, oh, this means we stand as an individual. Well, what did he mean when he talked about self-reliance? This is the biggest misunderstanding about Emerson's teaching because self-reliance is his best known essay. Uh, what he meant by self-reliance was self-trust, not self-sufficiency. He wasn't talking about isolationism or arrogance or patriarchy or stand rugged individualism. Uh, he was talking about self-trust. That was his theme you know, throughout all of his work, was listening to what he called the whisper only you can hear, you know, that still small voice within. That's what self-reliance is about. He said self-reliance is reliance on God. And what he meant by God wasn't a patriarchal traditional God. It was self it was reliance on the divine intelligence that we share. He said there's nothing so weak as an egotist. You know, the way people think of self-reliance is as egotism. There's nothing so weak in, as an egotist. He was as he was as contrary to egotism as it's possible uh, to be. But unfortunately, people get hung up on that on that terminology and they confuse him. And so that's how his work has been co-opted very often by people like Ayn Rand or Ronald Reagan or people who wanted to talk about this kind of John Wayne machismo. That is not what Emerson was about. And, and when you talk about uh, listening to the voice inside and God within, there's something that you have written. And I, I just want to compliment you. You guide us 
through this book. You divide it up into different lessons, 12 lessons, and you have done such extensive research, not just on his writings, but his talks and all of that. And then you bring in Thoreau and other his his neighbors were uh, Herman Melville and Walt Whitman and uh, and uh, Margaret Fuller and others. I mean, it's just an amazing collection of people. I loved what you wrote about the God within. And I just want to read it because it was so lovely. Um, you write, every molecule in nature houses the soul in miniature. The tiniest unit of life contained God, and this spiritual consciousness pervades every cell. It is our biological predisposition toward awakening to our true nature. And I just love that because you talk about, and he talked about, divinity is close. It's in proximity to our very being. The cells of our very body is what he's talking about. Right. And- we are nothing but God. <laughs> we, the reason he's tell, he, he talks about going into nature, for example, is to remind us that we are nature. And for Emerson, nature was a manifestation of God on earth, just as we are. There was absolutely no separation. The divine intelligence is what's flowing through our our veins. It's what's making the heart beat. That's divine intelligence. So there's really no separation. He was a true pantheist in that sense. He was a transcendentalist. He genuinely uh, saw non-duality as the, the bottom line. I'm here with Mark Matusik, and he is the author of Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Matusik. He is the author of Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. And we're talking about Ralph Waldo Emerson. And in the book, you you talk about when he first met Henry David Thoreau, eight years his junior, one of the first questions he asked him is, do you keep a journal? (laughs) And so tell me, why is journal writing important to him? Because I know that's also important to you, Mark. It is. Journal keeping for Emerson was how we practice self-inquiry and how we move toward a self-reliance is through self-investigation. And journaling was his 
favorite way of doing it. He called his journal The Wide World, and it got him through an isolated, unhappy, confusing, traumatizing childhood. And he kept keeping a journal throughout his life, as I have. I started when I was a very young kid. I started when I was eight or nine years old, and I've been keeping a journal ever since. And what it has taught me and what it taught Emerson is that putting your thoughts and feelings into language has a uniquely transformative and healing power. That when we take what's inside us, the formless and a maelstrom of the mind stream and put it down on paper, uh, it gives us insight. Uh, when it, we practice the you know witness awareness, that's where the insight comes in. You see, gosh, is that what I believe? Is that the story I'm telling myself? We learn so much by putting our experience into words. It's how we stay connected to this whisper that only we can hear. Uh, and this is something that Emerson got from the Stoics, the original Stoics, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, all journal keepers. Uh, they all use what they call spiritual exercises mostly through journaling, to move themselves philosophically toward uh, awakening, toward freedom, uh, and toward insight. You know, when we're stuck in our experience and identified fully with it, there's no insight that happens. We need to create a space. And that's, of course, what we do with therapy. We do it with deep dialogue with other people. Sometimes we do it in reflection and prayer, sometimes in meditation. But Emerson recommends journaling. Uh, and it's what I understood the best, which is why I, I make a lot of that in the book. Well, it, it just reminds me, it's it's also a really good way to know the, our biases, to to understand uh, the conditioning with what you, there's there's a term that is kind of used throughout the book, uh, and it, it's called angle of vision. And I love that term. I don't think I've ever seen it quite spoke. I've seen, you know, open our lens of perception or something like that. But angle of vision, talk about that angle of vision and why it's important for us to know from what angle we're looking at life. It's it's everything. Uh, Emerson said, what is, what is man but his angle of vision? You know, what are we but our perspective? You know, this oculus that we look at the world through. It's what defines our character. You know, how you see is who you are, and who you are is how you see. Now, he has a wonderful quote somewhere that we don't realize that the world is in lies in ruins because we are in we are in shambles within ourselves. You know, we don't understand that the way we see is what's creating our reality. So that's the first step toward self-awareness, whether you know, it's using Emerson's philosophy, whether it's using standard mindfulness practice, is recognizing that you are not your story. You're the storyteller, not the story. You are the person who has created this perspective that you look through. You're not the perspective itself. And when you get that, there's a little wiggle room for change. And this is something we need today. People are so identified with their opinions. They have no idea that these opinions don't define them and that they're looking through a glass darkly you know, and seeing shadows that aren't there and missing illuminations that are there. You know, our perspective determines everything. And that's what Emerson called the angle of vision. We have to question that angle of vision. There's a, a phrase that I wrote down because I, I thought it was so striking. 
He said, people only see what they are prepared to see. The health of the eye seems to demand a horizon. What they are, in the word prepared to see, that has a lot in it, that one word. Can you elaborate on what he was meaning there? Sure. That's, that's the meaning of implicit bias, you know, is that we have, we, what we expect to see is what we see. And what we don't expect to see, we often miss. It just goes completely by, you know, by our, our attention because we're not, we're not prepared for it. You know, that's how we create the world. We create the world with, with how we see and through our own limitations. And what he says about horizon, if we don't have a sense of possibility, if we don't have a sense of the distance we can travel and the largeness of the world, then it's hard to grow toward it, right? We need a horizon to grow toward. We need to have a sense of breadth and scope uh, to enlarge ourselves. If we don't have that, then we're living at the you know like at the bottom of a well, like it says in that you know famous Indian story, the little frogs who live at the bottom of the well, and they deny there's anything outside until one frog climbs up and looks and you know sees the ocean and and goes back, and the others don't believe him because they're not prepared to see what this frog has seen. And Emerson's great gift was giving us this vista, giving us this panorama. You know, you asked me what I got from Emerson to begin with. It was that vision. I had never come across it before. I didn't have a spiritual background. So the sense that there could be this grandeur uh, in the world and that we had this extraordinary capacity for growth was 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 news to me. And he, I needed the horizon of Emerson's work to really set me on my own spiritual path. Well, I, I'm thinking, Mark, you know, I, it's reminding me of something to prepare for a spiritual trip. And I'm thinking of this Seneca quote, which I just love that you brought up in the book. If one does not know to which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable. You have to have your compass set for something, you know, your trip. And that goes back to what you were just talking about, about how we may not have control over what we perceive, what what we see, but we have control over how we perceive it. So therefore, that's where we look at our goal. Like if we consider a goal rather than, oh, why am I a victim of this? Oh, life is just terrible. You also talk about the why and the how. And those are two different things. So I'd love for you to talk about the purpose of both asking the question, why? And if that's a good question to be asking or asking the question, how? This is really important in any on any path of, of self-knowledge. Uh, it's important up to a point to understand how you know, why things have happened. You know, there's a certain amount of analysis uh, retrospection, understanding it, it, it is helpful. But why becomes a never-ending circle of uh, of interrogation? And you become like this Ouroboros, you know, that's eating its own tail. You just go around in circles and you don't make progress. It's a much more useful question to ask how. And Emerson was all about taking the next step, not getting stuck in ratiocination, you know, not getting stuck in cogitation, 
uh, and trying to answer unanswerable questions. I mean, the fact of the matter is we can only, we only, we have such a limited uh, powers of, of, of knowledge. We know so little about the big picture. Trying to get to ultimate causation is a fool's game. We're not going to get there. What we can do is understand it to the best of our ability and then move into what now? And then move into what do I do with this? Uh, what do I do with this knowledge? You know, how do I want to use this uh, this uh, situation uh, to move forward in my life? And he's a great proponent of using adversity in particular, going, you know, using hard times and doing what the Stoics call turning the obstacle upside down, you know, realizing that the the answer is often within within the problem itself. And so he's very practical in that way and understands how easy it is to get caught in rumination. And that's where why takes you very often after you've done the, you know, it's kind of the fundamental uh, analysis, right. move on to move on. move on to, yeah, move on to how to live your life. Well, talking about like adversity and going to, there is a, some, a phrase somewhere, let's see, I want to talk about loss. Like we can consider that an adversity. Loss does not stain the soul. And I love that idea. And, and you actually had an epiphany at some point in your life to understand about the loss of a loving relationship in your life. Can you speak about that, Mark? Yes, absolutely. I had gone through a terrible breakup, uh, one of the worst in my life. I was, I was really devastated emotionally and flattened. I, I couldn't seem to pull out of it. And one day I had this realization. I realized that the pain I was feeling was connected to the story that I had somehow been diminished. I had been stained. I had been handicapped by this. This was going to prevent me from loving in the future. I had this whole narrative connected to this breakup. And I suddenly realized that no one could stop me from loving. Even this person that I had had this terrible relationship with, I could continue to love from a distance. No one could make me shut my heart down. And as soon as I felt that, Justine, I felt I felt liberated. You know, there was still sadness over what happened, but there wasn't the gloom and the sense of, of diminishment that I had that was the real source of my pain. I realized that I was free to love. No one could tell me, could stop me from loving. And I can't tell you how uplifting that was at a time when I just felt like my heart had been sucked out of my my body. Yeah, and uh, that kind of loss too, it's not like when we've, let's say, through the death of a loved one or something like that, and we talk about going through grief and then maybe at some point getting over that grief, maybe that's not what we should do. Maybe there is something else. Well, there's a wonderful book by Pauline Boss called The Myth of Closure. And this idea that things close down, that wound, emotional wounds close up, like they're neatly sutured and then grief passes and you don't feel it again, is a complete myth. We live with our losses. They become part of who we are. Grief becomes a you know one piece of furniture in the room of our life. It doesn't go anywhere. You learn to live with it. And you also learn what it can teach you. And 
Emerson was a uh, was always talking about not being diminished by our losses, and that things that happen in the exterior life, as he called it, uh, don't diminish or don't don't weaken or limit the spirit. You know, he said the soul refuses limits. Most people who've been through grief know that experience. So suddenly, after great grief, something rises. You know what Emily Dickens called the thing with feathers. It's somehow it rises, and you're still there. And you're still there. I'm here with Mark Matusik, and we're just having this marvelous conversation about life and how to live it. Uh, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Matusik, and I want to say something about how you can get in touch with him. You can go to his website and look up all, all wonderful things on his website, and that's markmatusik.com, and he spells his last name M-A-T-O-U-S-E-K, markmatusik.com, or you can go to seekersforum.com. So maybe that'll be easier for you to to get there because he does offer guided writing sessions and all sorts of wonderful things. So look that up. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So all of those ways to look up his work. I want to go to turning our deficits and our faults and our personalities, what we might consider our faults, into assets. And you have a particular one that you did, which I identify with because I do the same thing. And it's how I got through early days in my life. So talk about how you turned a deficit into an asset in your life. Sure. I was one of those kids. I was I was very lost and isolated and you know pretty unhappy. I grew up in a family where there was a lot of violence and trauma and difficulty. Uh, and so I became one of those kids who couldn't stop asking questions. I would just yeah, you know, I would just buttonhole people and ask them the most personal questions you can imagine, and they actually would answer. And I found that I could connect when I asked people questions. And it was very obnoxious uh, for some people. And other people loved it. I, what I learned very early is that people want to tell you their story. I learned that as a very young kid. Just ask. Uh, people want to tell you their story. Anyway, so this was a, a kind of a compulsion for me. And instead of it becoming uh, becoming a, uh, a detriment for me, I turned it into a career first as a journalist asking questions. Then I work at Interview Magazine, you know, asking questions. Then I become a memoir writer who's all about asking, you know, yourself questions. Now the work I do with students is all about helping people explore their own stories. So I kind of have an insatiable uh, appetite for people's inner lives. 
and it's been with me since I was a kid. And as I say in the book, if I had you know, one degree differently, I might have ended up the town drunk, you know, sitting <laughs> kind of, you know, kind of boring people in a bar with with with, with questions. But I, yeah, I managed uh, to turn it into something that has meaning for me. And it really connects you with people immediately. I mean, as you say, if people are, if they realize there's someone there to receive their stories, it becomes a tremendous engagement with others. And so those of us who are shy or introverted, hey, go for this one. This one really works. It'll it'll bring you out and lead you into some marvelous moments with others. And um, what I'm reminded of is a wonderful quote that you mentioned that Ralph Waldo Emerson spoke uh, or wrote, maybe. And he prophesied something. And I just love this. I hold that ecstasy will be found normal, an example of a higher plane of the same gentle gravitation by which stones fall and rivers run. I just love that quote that, hey, that it will be so natural for us to live in this kind of exuberant awesome relationship to all of life that it'll be so natural like the rivers running or stones falling do you agree (laughs) oh i completely agree emerson was a mystic uh, to his core uh, and he really truly believed that the vitality the erotic power of nature uh, is what animates us in our lives and the more we surrender to that natural vitality uh, the more awake we are, not only to the things around us, but to what we cannot see, you know, to the invisible world. And he was very attuned to the invisible world. And ecstasy is about being off-center. It's about expanding our, our, our center and expanding our circumference, you could say. And that's what he was all about. He saw that as our natural way of being and the way we live now as an unnatural way a shrunken way uh, of looking at the world. Well, I I know, too, he saw back in the 1800s what uh, quantum physicists are coming to now, that it's all about consciousness. It wasn't the material. I mean, he really saw it, that we were walking around like phantoms. Do you remember what he said about that? Well, one thing he said, which was also blasphemous, is that you call it Christianity, I call it consciousness. You know, for him, it was all about consciousness. He didn't see Christ as a, as as an avatar in the, in the sort of traditional way. He saw him as an enlightened being, uh, in the way that the Buddha was an enlightened being, and it was all for him a play of consciousness and and waking up to this larger movement of consciousness that's moving through us. Another thing he talks about is that we don't choose our thoughts, you know, that we're being, we're receiving a download from the universe all the time that God in his language, God is, uh, is thinking through us. And when you 
open your mind that way and consider your own thinking that way. It gives it a nobility and it also gives it a kind of grandeur that we're just not used to. And I know that that he was dialectical in his thinking, so he could look at life through many perspectives. He could hold paradox or or ambiguity in his thinking, whereas you know here in in these days, so many people are very binary in their thinking. It's either or us and them. And I, I, this may have been, I think you mentioned in the book that, that the Bhagavad Gita, that East Indian text, spiritual text, was very important to him. It was his favorite book. They used to call him around Concord, Massachusetts, they called him the Yankee Hindu. That was his nickname. It was as important a book to him as, as the Bible was. And he talked about the law of compensation, which is that for every sweet, there's a sour, you know, for every sour, there's a sweet, that every virtue you have will also can also be a downfall. Every downfall you have can also be turned into a virtue. He was completely paradoxical in how he looked at human nature and celebrating our contradictions. That was a big thing. He talks a lot about originality and embracing your contradictions, seeing that your limitations are actually part of what makes you original. He famously said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Mm. You know, trying to be monolithic, one thing, binary, as you're saying, yeah. under one label, is a recipe for a, for a shrunken uh, and artificial life. You know, in our authenticity, we in, we incorporate and house many things. You know, we're stingy and generous and scared and brave and selfish and all in one day. And and so to expand our uh, our acceptance of that is what self reliance is about. It's allowing yourself to live in the whole as who you are, including what we call the shadow. And if we don't incorporate that, then we lose strength. It's like standing, he says somewhere, it's like trying to stand upside down, you know, when you're not allowing all of who you are uh, to be in, in the room, so to speak. Yes, yes. There's another part in some of the lessons that you share with us from his thoughts. Of, it's called a Resilience Without Confidence in the universe is against you. Without confidence, the universe is against you. And I thought it was interesting that you brought up the word confidence and in relation to resilience. Because years ago, I was at a gathering with the Dalai Lama, and he mentioned the word confidence in in the context of spirituality. And I was taken back by that. And so what can you say about confidence in spiritual practice? Well, confidence comes from the root with faith, con fidelis. So it means having faith in oneself, having trust in oneself. And, and Emerson talked about that creating a kind of magnetism so that when we are in our own center, when we're telling the truth, it has a magnetic effect on the people uh, around us. We tend to magnetize experiences to us. 
when we have confidence, when we're sta- when we're taking our own seat, as they say in in Buddhism, taking your own seat is what is what confidence is about, and it's about allowing yourself to speak the truth. Uh, it's about not imitating other people. Uh, it's about al- not getting hung up on being too good. That's another thing Emerson <laughs> rails against. He says your goodness must have some have some edge to it, else it is none. You know, we live in this self-righteous, moralistic time when everyone's trying to one-up everybody else in terms of virtue signaling and being too good. He loathed that because the, the true goodness uh, has edge to it. He said, he said, a little wickedness is good to make muscle, he said. <laughs> Very humane. You know, he was not, for having, for being idealistic in certain ways, when it came to human nature, he was extremely realistic and uh, compassionate uh, around the complexity that all of us are, are, are working with and trying to integrate. So I, I get the feeling he was no goody two-shoes. I mean, he really looked very, very clearly at himself, at his foibles, at his upside and downside, and he encourages us to do the same. And that's one of the reasons he loved Thoreau so much, because Thoreau was a complete rascal. You know, Thoreau couldn't care less what anyone thought about him. Uh, And by comparison, Emerson was actually pretty pretty buttoned up yeah. temperamentally he was you know he was a boston brahmin uh, he was an introvert uh, and he wanted to be more like thoreau uh, and and not care uh, about right. that but you know right exactly exactly so i want to remind our listeners that i'm here with mark matusik and he's a wonderful uh, writer, has many, many books, and his current book is Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. And if you want to know more about the work that he does in the world, in the workshops and intensives and the guided writing sessions that he does, you can go to his website, markmatusik.com. He spells his last name M-A-T-O-U-S-E-K, or if it's easier, go to seekersforum.com, or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, and you can get there for any of those. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Matusik, and we're talking about Emerson and the transcendentalist and all sorts of wonderful, deep uh, wisdom that can apply to our lives here and now, right today. And you mentioned, Mark, before the break, you mentioned Thoreau, and there's a piece that you included in the book, Thoreau and Whitman and and so many others, even people today. I know uh, Andrew Harvey, I'm calling him to mind, and other people that you mentioned. But um, this is about Thoreau. And he, if, if when I read this little piece, if you substitute his saying post office, if you substitute um, that with the internet, emails, texts, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Twitter, or whatever else you use, if you think of it in terms of that, here's what Thoreau wrote. He said, in proportion as our inward life fails, we go more constantly and desperately to the post office. You may depend on it. That poor fellow who walks away with the greatest number of letters, proud of his extensive correspondence, has not heard from himself this long while. I love that. He could be writing if any one of us. Oh, I've got so many followers on Facebook and oh, I'm so popular and all of that. But what he's really saying there, and I think Emerson is saying, is uh, checking in with ourselves. I mean, they're really talking about, hey, don't let the world interfere with some inner process that's necessary in a truly fulfilling life. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that, Mark. That's exactly what he was saying, that when we look outward for approval, for uh, to imitate others, uh, for a sense of our own worth, uh, we are sunk. Uh, and that we really do need to spend what he called a well-spent hour a day with ourselves in whatever way that appeals. It can be in nature, it can be journaling, it can be reading, prayer. It doesn't matter. It's about being quiet with ourselves. That's where we're nourished. That's where our deep wisdom comes from. Uh, Also, if we're interested in bringing our genius into the world, what he called genius, which is our own originality, that only comes from within. That doesn't come from trying to copy what somebody else has done. So it's absolutely imperative to keep our eyes on on our inner life. Uh, and it doesn't mean becoming antisocial. It doesn't mean tuning the world out. It just means shifting the proportion. You know, most of us live too much engaged with what's going on out there. Uh, we need to switch that proportion. You know, so so 30% external, 70% internal. And it's a way of working against this, this tendency, particularly with social media, uh, this tendency to lose ourselves. Uh, in, with through influencers and through what we're told uh, by people who are uh, who have nothing to do with our lives. Exactly, exactly. Another thing that he covers that's really very surprising, 
and it's something that's up in our culture right now. It's uh, everybody, the new spiritual practice is non-dualism. I mean, it's big time right now, non the non-dualistic way. But they were talking about this, he and others were talking about this way, way, way before in the 1800s um, and the connection of life. They were really kind of looking at a quantum entanglement, they understood that, even though this is something that came into uh, physics in the 20th century. So uh, say something about non-duality and why that was important to them and to us now. Well, it's hugely important. And you're right, the word is get so bandied around, uh, but but all it, it goes back to, to Vedanta. It goes back to our fundamental understanding of coming out of the one and that we are all part of the one. Uh, Advaita, which is a part of Hinduism that focuses on non-duality, means not two. So it's recognizing that we are not two. That's weird that this separation is an optical illusion which everyone from uh, from Patanjali to Einstein recognized that this is an uh, we have there's an optical delusion of consciousness and Emerson was aware of it as well so you're right it's nothing new uh, and it it's part of the pantheism that I've been talking about there's the sense of there being no difference between uh the tree you're looking at and the one who is looking that this is this is a unity that there's only there is seeing that's what's going on, and that's the way Emerson saw it long before anyone was talking about mindfulness practice or or non duality in his world. He never used that term, but it runs through all of his work. The yeah. sense of the wholeness and of all of us participating with the, what he called the one mind. We're part. We're yeah. all part of this one mind, and everything else is 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 a story. Everything else is is some egotistical. Uh, ego-driven narrative about specialness or, or separation. The fact is we are a par- all parts of this one body. And that was how he, he was a naturalist at heart. And he saw philosophy and spirituality through a naturalist lens. So he really did see us as cells in the same body. And then there was no contradiction between individuality and unity, that they were both part of the same thing. It's both and. And that goes back to the dialectical thinking that you were talking about earlier. Everything is both and. And then that makes us um, part of all of humanity in some ways. I mean, that we're one intimate circle. In these times of of polarization and everything, uh, to really come into what he would consider the loving kindness practice that that the Buddhists do. And I, I'd love for you to say something uh, about the advantage of that kind of practice and how we can bring it into our lives. He saw he saw human life as a kind of circle. And he saw the purpose of life was to draw people toward uh, your own circle, the circle of your compassion, the circle of your attention, the circle of your heart. Uh, the idea was to expand the circle, as Peter Singer wrote a book famously using that title. To expand the circle is to connect with the world, and it's also to recognize our own true nature. Uh, Emerson want did not want us to get hung up on appearances. And that's another thing that he would have driven him crazy in this time of identity politics. It's all about what makes us different. And no one says, 
nearly enough about the commonality because that doesn't make interesting politics. You know, tribalism is all about surfaces and appearances and difference. And as long as we move down that path of tribalism and difference, we're going to, you know, stay in the same uh, violent, uh, hellish situation that we're in now. So Emerson's talking about expand the circle, you know, recognize the the unity underneath the differences, under, you know, the, the ocean underneath the waves. When you forget the ocean underneath the waves, you've lost a sense of what is true and real. And what has true depth, yeah. Another uh, subject that is brought up is the subject of fear. And there's a wonderful piece that you have in the book about how fear produces antibodies in the immune system. And there's also a social antibodies that's kind of active, overly active in the world today and how we can be um, fearful by irrelevant causes. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, we we pick up things that just have really no reason for us to be fearful. And that's right. fearful of the other, of otherness, I think. Sure. What happens is we overreact to fear in the same way that the immune system uh, that goes into overdrive uh, leads to autoimmune disease. It's overreacting to stimuli. Uh, and that's what we do socially now, because we live in this age of, of PTSD, where there's, mo- you know, there's this feeling of trauma. Going, it's trauma waiting to happen. And it takes almost nothing to kick it off and to trigger it. Whoever knew that the word that you'd have to give trigger warnings before you give a, a lecture for fear of of kicking off somebody's latent, overactive, you know, terror response. And that's what's happening is this is that our public our, our social immune system is is in overdrive and it's turned against itself. And that's when you get cancel culture. That's when you get this this inability to tolerate difference. It's just too scary. If you're in a traumatized state, if you're looking at the world through traumatized eyes, everything looks that isn't you looks like an enemy. And that's where we are now. So it, it's division and rancor and enmity waiting to happen. And that's a dangerous place to be. So the kind of antidote to that would be... Well, two things. First of all, to recognize the other in yourself, that the other is you, going back to what we're saying about no separation on duality, recognizing your universal common uh, origin. Uh, and it's also confronting our fears. And this is something that he's very uh, adamant about. You know, all He says, you must always, always, always do what you fear to do. And that the only way through fear is to look at it, look it in the face, to approach fear. That's when it starts to change. You know, when you avoid it, that's when it becomes monolithic and and and, and right. overwhelming. So it's really about looking closely at fear and uh, analyzing it, understanding where it comes from, so that it doesn't stop you, uh, because exactly. it will. We have exactly. this self-protective uh, mechanism that will stop us if we're not careful. Exactly. Oh, Mark, we could go on and on. Thank you so much for being with us. I've been speaking with Mark Matusik, author of Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. And if you want to know more about his work, go to seekersforum.com.
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3801. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.